I think everybody will agree with me that one of the weirdest things Christian parents or church nurseries can do is to decorate their kids' room in Noah's Ark themes. <laughs> We've all seen this before, right? This is very weird. The flood of Genesis that we are looking at today is easily one of, if not, the most violent story in all of the Bible. With immense suffering, judgment, terror, and death. So catastrophic that only one family, one family survived. And yet, we're like homeschool parents or whatever, decorate their nurseries. Joking, I immediately looked at the patties. I'm so sorry. I made eye contact at the wrong moment. There's nothing wrong with homeschool people. There's a little wrong with homeschool. Right? Oh, this is cute. No, no, it's destruction. It's seriously, I was thinking, it's like decorating our nurseries in like Civil War wallpaper or like D-Day murals. It's really very quite dark. It's very grim. But, 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 this has happened because of what cultural or compromising Christians are, are, are very good at, and that is placating the God of the Bible. We love to sanitize the Old Testament episodes to be less offensive or less graphic, when in fact that is one of its most important verifying aspects. But this is what Genesis does, especially the flood, especially with Noah. This legendary story, it pushes people off. It's going to push some here today off of, off of a fence or, or, or out of the gray into three basic categories. That's what we're going to have already here coming to today's you know, teaching. We have three basic categories of person. That's to, to domesticate it, which we just talked about. There's other people here right now who are saying to deny it. I read somewhere that, I think it was Miley Cyrus who said that the Noah's Ark is one of the greatest fairy tales of all time. So if we consider it biblical folklore, that is very hard then to justify Jesus Christ himself verifying it. When Jesus gives a solid endorsement, that just proves its genuineness. Plus it's mentioned eight other times through eight different books of the Bible. But what both Christians here and those who aren't mostly fall in with the story of Noah and the flood is to disdain it. Christians are not. Not to just deny it or to domesticate it, they disdain it. I mean, the flood is an ancient recounting of an angry God who arbitrarily just hates people. That the God of the Old Testament is like a petulant child with like a, a magnifying glass, scorching ants. And just to confess, I get it. I've been reading these verses all week. I kind of get it. There's this resistance like on an island within my heart. So because of that, before we can even touch the faith of Noah, we have to understand why Noah's faith is mentioned at all. And that comes by way of knowing the purpose of the flood. But because today isn't about the flood, I have to do this very, very quickly. So I'm asking for tons of grace. I have to go over the flood and its purpose really fast. If you want other outside references, you can watch Evan Almighty or like Russell Crowe do his thing, but I have to cover this very, very quickly. So I'm preemptively managing your expectations. Well, you didn't cover this. I know. I'm telling you now, okay? This cannot be exhaustive. So Genesis chapter 6, as you're turning there, what I want everybody to realize it's just basically kind of have this framework that these are the most formative chapters in all of the Bible. Not one of, not some of, 
These are the most formative chapters in the Bible. That being Genesis 1 through 11. These are what's called the prime evil history. And out of the 11 chapters, these 11 chapters, five. Five are given to Noah and his flood. So hopefully we're starting to get that who he is and his story, his part is major. It is a major figure. No other person in these 11 chapters is given this much real estate. It is a centerpiece out of these 11. Thus, it deserves our utmost attention, and it gets it with its opening verses. So for our time today, I believe I can address why the flood in just three short verses. I proved it by Pastor Isaac. He says it's possible. Thank you. So if you have an issue, take it up with him, not me. Okay, and this hopefully inspires you to do your own work. Look at verse five of chapter six. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is, this is big. Contrast this with Genesis 1 where it said the Lord saw that it was good to now the Lord saw that it was wicked. This is giving us their current state of humanity. Now, before some of us think, oh, wickedness, <laughs> that sounds like nowadays, doesn't freaking Republicans? Like before anybody goes, <laughs> the left, am I right? Or Putin and nuclears, whatever. <laughs> no, no, that is not right. This wickedness is indescribable. Like today's current climate is like a Sandals Beach Resort. Anybody been to a Sandals? It's like you and like older people. It's really great. Whatever evil you can possibly imagine, multiply it until it makes you outrageously uncomfortable, and then you're halfway there. That is what it looks like. And this verse shows us that it was evil continually, meaning it's not going to stop. The state of their moral corruption so bad that the Lord resolved and, and decided to intervene dramatically. So what we're seeing is God's patience does come to an end. Look at verse 7. This shows us that it comes to an end. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry. Listen to God say this. For I am sorry that I have made them. Is there a sadder line in all of the Bible? I don't think so. Now, this is an interesting wordplay with the original language here of blot out and wickedness. The word used to describe this is summed up in the idea of destroyers. This wickedness, they are destroyers. But get this, it is the same word that God uses in the flood, meaning he destroyed the destroyers. God destroyed the destroyers. So it's something along the lines of God saw the earth, saw it, it was corrupt. So God said, I'm going to corrupt the earth. I'm sorry, I'm going to corrupt you with the earth. One more time. God saw the earth, saw it was corrupt, and said, I'm going to corrupt you then with the earth. A brilliant Croatian theologian and public intellectual who lived through the oppression and the genocides of Croatia, he said when he came to America that he discovered that we have a deeply held American belief myth. That belief is that the God of judgment is far more frightening than he is freeing. He was shocked as he came here and he goes, why is everybody here afraid of an America that God is frightening, that his judgment is frightening? 
he goes, rather than it being frightening, he goes, it actually leads to a deeper faith. This is what he says. He says, if you believe in a God who is all love and no justice, you will seize and rage with vengeance and end up taking matters into your own hands. Only when you believe that God will one day execute perfect justice can you lay the sword down and be free from hatred and bitterness and the driving desire to avenge the wrong. Look at verse 6 of chapter 6. And the Lord regretted that he had made them on the earth, and it grieved him. As bothered by some of you about all of this, what this conjures up, what this brings up, nobody here is more bothered than God. This description of grieved means he had unfulfilled longing or that he was despairingly frustrated. But through this, even in judgment, God does not surrender his purpose in creating man. Hence, the story points forward to an unknown remedy for mankind's wickedness. So what I just hope is kind of shown today, or at least inspired today, is that this is an invitation which inspires a warranted certainty that we've been talking about for weeks. For some of us, this will take faith to even believe this. It's going to take faith to even believe that God is still good in the account of the flood. This is like immediate application for what we've been talking about. Remember, we're defining faith as warranted certainty in God alone, in his goodness. Not just that God will provide good things, but even those spiritual, emotional, and mental, and physical famines, we can still have warranted certainty in his goodness. So if we're struggling today with compatibilism, I'm just trying to address anybody here who maybe is bothered by the flood. If we're struggling with compatibilism for the flood, I say, good, We should be wrestling with how we wrestle or how we understand mercy, faith, and his judgment. That is very, very good because we do not have a faith or encourage a faith here of easiness or blind blind faith. So when you do this, and I'm going to be moving on from this point, but I will say this, whenever somebody's trying to wrestle with compatibilism, with with this understanding, this is what I encourage you to do. Start with this question. Write it down in your little journals, but write it down. Understand, who is God? We always must, when we're struggling to understand anything in the Bible, you write down, who is God? And you write down, he is good. You understand that he is merciful, and he is righteous, and he is gracious, and he is sovereign, and he is imminent, and he is holy. And because of that, the mural of God's character must, must, must be painted in, in the landscape of judgment and justice and mercy. As Prince of Preachers Charles Spurgeon said, he said, he who does not believe that God will punish sin will not believe that he will pardon it through atoning. If we, if I, if Collective Church avoids preaching on judgment or we neuter it, then we will be hiding the truth of God for your comfort. And it's basically, we might as well just decorate our nursery in clouds and little giraffes. It's the same thing. To believe in the biblical God is to believe in a God of wrath and wonder, of judgment and justice. And Noah, Noah believed in them both. Noah believed in God in his fullness. But to read rightly Genesis 6 through 9, it's to know that this is not about a flood. None of these verses is about a flood. This is not about judgment. This is not about animal preservation. This is not even ultimately about damnation or destruction. The flood account is one of the most inspiring, redemptive stories in all of the Bible. Because this is a tale about new beginnings and merciful second chances. So less about a flood, but rather, why would God save a single family? 
This isn't about why God would take out humanity. It's why would he save one? Why would he save one family? Which leaves us to at least hopefully start asking, what in the freaking world is so special about Noah? What is special about this dude? Is it because his name means rest and comfort? Because through him, God would bring rest to the world from the destroyers? No, but that is important. Genesis 6, 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Aha, there it is. This is why Noah, it was spared because he was perfect. Because he was blameless and God only saves perfect, blameless people. Good night, everybody. No. Blameless in the Old Testament doesn't mean sinless. A person who was blameless is somebody who does not still insist or permit blameworthy actions. Meaning somebody who is blameless hates and turns from and still turns to God seeking mercy. And for what it's worth, just so everybody knows, Noah's reputation is like faithful zookeeper is just as popular as everybody knowing that Noah is the first recorded drunk in the Bible. So that's up there. We have both sides of Noah. So again, what is so special about Noah? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And again, that is the point. Remember, the key to understanding Genesis is hidden deep, for our particular reasons, is hidden deep within the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Remember, it's like we talked about a couple weeks ago, it's our answer key. Hebrews 11.7 gives us a full understanding to not only why he's mentioned in the 16, but why he holds God's favor. So we're going to read verse 7 of chapter 11, should be on the screen, you don't have to turn there. This is our answer key. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith. By faith, Noah. By faith, Noah. By faith, Noah. And I know that's not much of a shocker because we're in a series on faith, but I just want us to slow down and soak this bad boy up like bread with marinara sauce or whatever, however you do it. But we'll let just soak this up. His faith. Friends, is stupendous. It's outrageous. As I sat with it this week, I was continually, continually blown away. I can't even stress how far it transcends beyond human rationale, this man Noah. It doesn't even make sense to the normal mind. To do anything he did, any one of us would look at him and go, you are a blithering idiot, Noah. And again, most of the stories within the 16 that we're going to be looking at, we're all going to say they're blithering idiots, believing the highly improbable and the absolutely impossible, which hopefully Collective Church stokes the coals of our own hearts, reminding us that a faith, which a lot of us are seeking, but a faith which only believes in the probable is anybody's faith that only believes in the probable and like, yeah, that's my faith. So... A faith which only believes which is in the barely possible, awesome. But a faith that acts upon the absolutely impossible, Lord, yes. Give me a second helping of that. See, Noah, as the first doomsday prepper, built a boat in the complete absence of a sea or a river. 
Noah spoke of oncoming rains and stale lands. Are we getting this? It is a faith so alive that he has the audacity to prepare and build a ship on dry land as if he was building it by the sea. To us today, that is the equivalent of us building like a cold stone creamery in Antarctica. Or it's like the equivalent of us putting a USC gift shop in UCLA. It's the equivalent of putting something cool in Fresno. There's no point. There is zero point. It's absolutely ludicrous. Sorry, Fresnoans. To any, right now, to anybody here, is there an invitation from God that's so outlandish, outrageous, audacious, given to you today for you to leave this or build this or give that? Is there anything like that today for you? And so, and yet, if there is, and you have not yet acted upon it, I guess my question would be, what is stopping you? Is it fear of man? Because if so, can you imagine the ridicule of Noah? Before the actual flood of God's judgment, he faced a flood of judgment from the gawkers, and from the critics, and from the scorners, and from the mockers, even from his own family and friends. See, I think if we were honest, when it comes to social persecution for many, that is the guillotine of our faith. Collector Church, those who are here and those who are here, who even mission members who want to be held to a higher level of spiritual responsibility, this series is inspiring us, inspiring us to purposely put ourselves in situations that take improbable faith. Where we are to wake up and to take God's word and his promises so seriously in the light that our evidence, or excuse me, our eyes don't even need evidence. And if that evokes, you think about it, putting ourselves in that situation, and if some of you know what that is, and that evokes a, a no thank you or a gag reflex, then I think we found where our faith is wanting. Because that is what faith is. Look at verse 7 of chapter 11. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. For Noah, that was the oncoming flood. We are reading a supreme example of faith triumphing over appearances or circumstances or even present need. A faith which fixates itself upon that which is unseen. Mean faith is God speaking about future events and circumstances which inspire Noah and inspire us to act in the present. Sadly, I think this is the reverse for us. I think this is the reverse for us. It's how we're supposed to, of how we've grown in faith. We want God to settle our present realities for our future actions. That's how most of us live out of faith. Settle our present circumstances for our future actions. But that is not faith at all. That is control. Church, I really do wish we had time to unpack this as I'm going to start transitioning now. But I, wanna, I wish we could talk about like, why there was two and two animals brought on and some seven clean and some not. I wish we could talk about why Noah hates apples because he only likes pears. I wish we could talk about that. Anybody? Thank you. Thank you. I wish we could talk about why the flood was global or local. Global. But I wish we could do it. I wish we could talk about, to be honest, what kind of money Noah had. Bucks and does. Nothing? I spend weeks preparing this for you guys. I see some spouses whispering in each other's ears, telling them the jokes. I see it. 
You liked it, Ethan. We don't have time. We don't have time. Very quickly, there are three things I want to point out that are particular to Noah and his faith. Just three things. We're going to go very quick, and we're going to go small to big. I want to point them out. Number one, Genesis 6.22. If you have your Bibles open still. Look at this. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. He did all that God commanded in him. Is it, is it hot in here? Can we, or this is just my jokes? I am sweaty. Holy smokes, it's hot in here. We did all that God commanded him. Here's my point number one. He said yes. Noah said yes. Noah gave an unqualified yes. You see, Noah didn't build because he saw a need. Noah built because God told him. So what Noah preaches to us is that faith in God is an unqualified, uncompromising yes to whatever he asks for. To whatever he asks for. I think too many of us just assume that Noah just spent 120 years being a boat builder and that was completely fine. Like there was nothing else Noah wanted to do. Noah could have had dreams to be a farmer. Oh, I just want to grow veggies. Or whatever he wanted to do. And yet, decade upon decade of wielding a hammer when maybe he had other plans for his own life. And I think for us, collective church, that, that haunts us. That haunts us. To give an unconditional yes to anything that is asked of us. Ditching the whole, fine, God, I'll do this as long as you give me a raise. Or ditching, fine, I'll do this as long as you provide a wife. Whatever it could possibly be. That is just postponing obedience or punting obedience. God, you want me in community? Yes. God, you want me taking spiritual responsibility for my life? Yes. God, you want me to be active in making disciples? Yes. You want me to challenge that person? Yes. You want me to receive from that person? Yes. Do you want me to start? Do you want me to stop? Yes, yes, yes. If that makes us uncomfortable, boom, yes, that's, that's helpful because it uncovers there's, that, there's a hole in our faith boat showing us that we are lacking in warranted certainty in his goodness. Because if we trusted in that warranted certainty, we would say yes and yes and yes. Is this the posture of your hearts, or your souls, or your thoughts that you normally have with God? Or do we say no more than we say yes? Or do we say wait more than we say yes? See, if we're learning anything from the series is that God only accepts one set of terms. One. And that is unconditional, unqualified compliance. These 16 people said yes. And for Noah's particular case, he had to say yes and yes and yes and yes and yes every day. For how long? Look at verse 3 of chapter 6. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Our second point for this faith for Noah is its longevity. He did it for 120 years. Every day. I think most of us, if I can confess, and I'll know this for me as well, struggle to do anything for 120 days. If you don't believe me or if you don't believe that for yourself, like, I want to ask how your New Year's resolutions are going. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I want to ask how your resolution from 2017 is going. 
This is something I think we, again, we struggle with because even if we get to the point of giving an unconditional yes, and that's beautiful and that's great, I think the follow-through, but the follow-through. Friends, the follow-through is which determines a genuine faith. This is what we've seen over and over in the book of Hebrews, is a faith that endures. But how does one hope to attain this? Look at this, point three, Hebrews eleven seven. How do we hope to attain a faith that endures? By faith, by faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir to the righteousness that comes by faith. His holy fear, so real by comparison that he actually condemned those who were around him, the skeptics around him. And if you're saying, oh, that's how he did it, that's the possibilities, he was freaked out by God. That God, you know, tempted or scared him away with, I'm going to spank you. That's just not it. I'd be curious if you guys have actually thought about your level of fear with God. Do you fear God? In reverent fear, he constructed an ark. Do you remember the words of Hebrews 10? It is a frightening thing to fall into the hands of a living God. If you're unaware, if you fear God or don't know your level of fearing God, there's a little teeny quiz I'm going to give right now. I have a quick quiz for you, and your answer will expose your fear level. It's this. Can the God of the Bible rightly and justifiably judge this world by a destructive flood? However you answer that will show your level of fear. But before I read this quote, I want to read a quote. But before I read it from 17th century John Calvin, I want us to just remember everything we've heard about Noah's people and Noah himself. This is what Calvin says in the 15th century. Excuse me, 15th century, yes. He says, all wickedness flows from a disregard of God. Since the fear of God is the bridle by which our wickedness is held in check, its removal frees us to indulge in our every kind of misconduct. Since the fear of God is the bridle by which our wickedness is held in check. Since we are built to fear, collective church, something infinitely greater than ourselves, something awesome and something mysterious and something incomprehensible, sin gets in there and predisposes to replace that holy fear with something other than God. That collective church is the path to wickedness. And so when the Bible speaks of two contrasting fears, there is this servile fear, if you've heard of that term. That is fear of, of rejection. That is fear of disappointment. That's fear of worthlessness. That is fear of control or provisional lack. That is fear of not having the American dream. That is fear of intimacy. It's the same level of fear that you could say that a white shark might bring you. It's that. It's the same level of fear that snakes might bring you or spiders or clowns or talking dolls or whatever. It's anxiety, or excuse me, it's dreadful anxiety of certainty or an uncertainty. Making sense? It's dreadful anxiety of uncertainty, which is the absolute enemy of warranted certainty. Now, if you've ever studied fear, has anybody ever studied fear? If you've ever studied fear, if you've actually ever studied fear, it doesn't, what it'll expose to you is that our minds do not need much to press the servile panic button. 
Our minds do not need much. That is why the best of horror movies do not show you too much of the monster. It's unnecessary. They play into darkness because it is uncertain what is behind the door. So I don't know if you guys have seen or studied the movie Jaws, considered one of the greatest horror movies of all time, but what's fascinating is the, the shark is not fully seen or truly seen until 80 minutes into the movie. And then when it actually gets there, it has six to seven minutes of airtime, the shark. And yet we, most of us, if you've seen it, are terrified to go in the water. Because why? Because it's all too often the uncertainty of the unknown, the opposite of warranted certainty. It's the unknown which terrifies us. Will I be rejected if I go into this community? Will I be loved? Will I be liked? Will I fail? Unknown, unknown, unknown. And it tears us away from God. Because we must know. And we, since we can't, then we try to control producing wickedness. See, the problem, though, that despite Noah's ability to build an ark or have holy fear or even survive the flood, it did not produce the power to escape the wickedness of his own hearts, of his own heart. So, in fact, one of the gravest instances in all of the Bible includes when Noah gets off the ark and he builds his altar and then he decides to get drunk, as we talked about. And then he decides to get naked And one of the gravest, most wicked instances in all of scripture is it says his sons found him naked and the wording in the Hebrews in such a way that it implies that they took sexual advantage of their father, his own sons. Now, I don't say that to try to just be graphic or to expose anything other than the fact that the darkest, wicked stories in the Bible follow immediately God's cleansing, cleansing flood that the depth of wickedness, servile fear is far deeper than any flood could ever cleanse. So the problem wasn't the flood, it was needing a different ark to save us from ourselves. Our wickedness and the good and right judgment that comes towards it. Look at, Jesus said these words, should be on the screen, Matthew chapter, verse 37 of Matthew chapter 24. For as were the days of Noah, so will the, uh, excuse me, the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And when they were unaware, and when they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Verse 39, just one more time. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the, the coming of the Son of Man. I wonder, collective church, how many are unaware here this morning? And I wonder if today is the possible warning for you. You see, as fearful people, it makes sense to fear God's judgment. We should fear God's judgment. It should be motivation for us to be reconciled with God. It's interesting because it's this very present day understanding of a coming flood which inspired Darren Aronofsky's recent film adaptation. I don't know if anybody saw it. Whatever, it doesn't matter. But I found this direct quote from Darren Aronofsky quite interesting. This is why he made the movie. He said this. Because I just remember being scared. I remember thinking as a kid, what if I'm not good enough to get on the boat? I have wickedness. I have sin. Would I actually get on the boat? And what would it be like if I didn't get on? 
Aronofsky made his adaptation of the film of the unknown, because of the unknown, because of fear, because of what if I can't, what if I'm not on the boat? But what humanity, what is humanity or life altering is that because of Jesus, there is no longer any fear of uncertainty with God. God gives his response to Aronofsky and to all of our dying questions. You see, the good news of Noah, the Noah account, is the see and know as we are lifted above the waters of judgment, Jesus is submerged into them. And it's, it's a little cliche, but we have to get and we have to understand and we have to accept that Jesus is our ark. Jesus isn't the true and better Noah. Jesus is the true and better ark. I want to say archetype, but I'm going to resist right now. See, by choosing to place our faith in him, then our future and our past and our present and our provisions and our approval, all of it is settled like an ark in the storm. Friends, may I be so bold today that whatever is hindering you or me from greater fear or from fear at all stems from a lack of holy fear excuse me, faith at all, whatever stems from a greater faith or faith at all stems from a lack of holy fear, a lack of knowing God as he desires to be known. Proverbs 9, I just want to rattle these off. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Proverbs 28, blessed, happy is the one who fears the Lord. Psalms 130, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Clearly a holy fear implies a living active relationship with this God. When was the last time, and we're going to wrap it up here, but when was the last time we asked, you asked for a greater fear in God? I'll confess for me, it's been a while. To be overwhelmed with wonder before the greatness of God and his love and the forgiveness we've been given, to be warmed by his bright holiness, his magnificent love to be unsettled and steadfast that we, like Noah, could and have been spared or we could choose to not enter. There are people today choosing to not enter the ark. So our questions that take us into time of response will not be, will I fear? It will be, who will I fear? Only we learn to fear, the fear of the Lord tends to take away all other fears. So then I will end with this. If there's anyone here knowing full well that God is calling you to do something, to believe something, to become something, but it's a servile fear of man, of the unknown, the panic button, the uncertain that is holding you back, today, now, give the unqualified yes, the uncompromising yes, which leads to longevity, and follow through with it. Follow through with it. Pray with me.